Our um, scripture reading for the morning is taken from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. It is a fairly long chapter, beginning at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and were gathered together at Succoth, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Succoth and Azekah in Ephraim's Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat of mail was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a, shekel, and a shield-bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephraimite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years, and in, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Aminadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near and presented and the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. And carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their, their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. 
Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, when he spoke to the men, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him towards another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. And when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it, and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing as he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. And David fastened his sword to his armor, and he tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, And he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and good-looking." So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, 
And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it was so when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hastened and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekram. And, they wo- and the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shuriam, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Amber, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son this, youth, this young man is. Then, as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. This is the word of the Lord. A brief commenting cannot do justice to 58 verses. But it is important to note in this very well-known account that there tends to be in Christendom two approaches to it. And the major approach is this passage tells you that you should be like David. There have been scores of sermons, thousands upon thousands of sermons, where this has been the passage and David's courageousness and defiance of the Philistine, uh, that's commended to you, and you are said you should be like him. In our Reformed world, there's definitely a backlash to that. This passage, we say, has nothing to do with you at all. That's probably just a little bit of an overstatement. Because David, though he is a type of Christ, though Christ will be the greater David, 
David is still a human being, and there are certain commendable things here that you should take to heart. He views God as the great leader of the armies of Israel. He believes God can do all his holy will, in the the words of uh, one of our catechisms. Um, There are things for a, you should be like this kind of sermon. But the major truth of the passage, and what should really be focused on, if not exclusively, is that David is a type of Christ. Jesus Christ will be the greater David. And what you see David doing here is a foreshadowing of what the Lord Jesus Christ will do. Jesus Christ will come against the Philistine. He will stand against the defier of the Lord God and his armies. He will do what no other man could do. He will slay the Philistine and save Israel. This is Jesus the Lord as we see him in type and shadow. We would not be here. We would be defeated by the Philistine. We would be their slaves to this moment, meaning we would be the slaves of hell, suffering, and damnation if Jesus the Lord Christ had not defeated them. Jesus is the Lord who defies those who defy God, and Jesus is our Savior. Thanks be to God. However, that is our commenting. Our sermon is drawn from the psalm we just sang, from Psalm 147. Uh, It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm, and it has spoken to me this week. Uh, It is the passage that I have meditated upon this week. Uh, Given the week I have had, this is kind of all I can give you, Uh, but it is... Uh, a message that is drawn from God's very word. When in doubt and trouble for putting together a sermon, I, 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 I summon up my inner J.C. Ryle. As many of you know, J.C. Ryle is kind of my BFF. I've got a poster of him over my bed with little X's and O's. Um, he, he, is, he is my favorite dead person. Uh, and his approach to scripture is utterly profound. If you you read any of his commentaries, J.C. Ryle looks at the passage and he formulates questions to ask it, pertinent questions. And in asking the question, he then draws out of the text the answer so that in reality he is letting the text speak for itself. Uh, He's not a man of beautiful words. He speaks well, but... He is a man who asks God's word to speak, and it speaks. So in the the spirit of how J.C. Ryle would approach Psalm 147, I have asked our psalm seven questions, and this is the answers that I find. With an open Bible in hand and, and looking at the psalm, I ask, for the psalmist... What are the personal aspects of God he wishes to highlight? The psalm is primarily about God, and 
the psalmist cannot bring you the totality of God in a psalm. In fact, God is incomprehensible. But the psalmist has focused on certain characteristics of God, and uh, these are what he seems to bring to us. In verse 5, the psalmist says, Great is our Lord. And the term great is pretty general. Great means, you know, great in any way you can kind of think about it. How is God great? Well, he's greatly great. God is mighty and powerful. God is able. God is, is beyond all comprehension. Great is our Lord. And in the same verse, in verse 5, the psalmist draws out of greatness that he is mighty in power. God is being presented to us in his glory, in his majesty, and specifically in his ability to do things. Who is the God that we worship through Jesus Christ? He is mighty beyond all question. He is great beyond all greatness. And he is of infinite understanding. It has well been said that as a man gets older, the more he realizes the less he understands. And I am absolutely convinced that is so. Human intellect is fallen, and in our Reformed tradition, we emphasize that. We, we emphasize that the, the divine nature that we have is holiness, righteousness, and knowledge, and we're fallen in all those things. And even when we are redeemed by Christ, we only begin to have a beginning of those things. We have no idea what they shall be like in eternity. But the psalmist points to God and says he is mighty and he is all-powerful. And that might be frightening to us if you really think about it. But then he turns to God's understanding and says there is nothing beyond God's understanding. He is All understanding, all knowledge is known to him, all wisdom is possessed by him. He is of infinite understanding. And he has things he likes and he doesn't. The psalmist uses that language, and he uses it in verse 10. Verse 10 reads as follows. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. Under those things, the psalmist is effectively comprehending all things that God has created that you might be impressed with. In the ancient world, uh, the legs of a warrior were focused on because in melee combat, the ability to stand to the enemy, to not be pushed back, not, to not be knocked over, it's all in the legs. And so a soldier was proud of his legs. He would not miss leg day at the gym. Uh, the horse was the instrument of war, and uh, the horse pulled the chariot, and the horse had the archer upon it. It was the fighting machine for man, and... When men think of power and ability, this is the things they think about. But God, the psalmist says, isn't impressed. A horse can be killed in battle. The strongest of men grows weak over time. 
Samson may ask God for grace to knock the temple down one more time, but men fail. And God looks at mortal kind. He looks at our greatest strengths. He looks at those who consider themselves mighty, and he takes no pleasure in that at all. Rather, the psalmist says, if you want to know what God takes pleasure in, that's in verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Those are covenantal words. You fear the king. God takes pleasure in those who have placed themselves under his rule, who are citizens of his kingdom. God takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his, quote, mercy. The word has said is translated in like seven or eight different ways in the Hebrew Bible. In English. To be honest, I'm not really sure why that is. Because it kind of obscures its meaning. And as every Bible dictionary will tell you if you look the word up, this is one of the most important words in the entire Hebrew Bible. It means covenantal faithfulness. It will be translated sometimes loving kindness. And that emphasizes God's heart towards those in covenant with him. It will be translated here as mercy, which focuses on God's action. And that's probably why they translate it here, because the psalm focuses on what God's doing. So they put mercy. But really, it's all comprehended in covenantal faithfulness. Why does God love his elect? Why does God act for them? Well, the answer is God is faithful to the covenant that he makes. The very essence of the nature of God, and remember, we're working with the question, what does the psalmist present of of God to us? The very essence of God's nature is that God loves and keeps his covenant. If you are in covenant with God, you may at times wonder, why does God love me? Now, there's, there's different uh, characters, and some disciples will never actually ask that question, but the, the average person will find themselves in dark places where they themselves have put themselves. They will see their sinful nature, and they will wonder, why does God still hold on to me? Well, the answer is uh, God's grace, of course, but God's grace is covenantal. God has made a promise to you. He has said, I will be your God forever. God has walked by himself through the pieces of the covenant. He did not invite you through. God keeps his covenant. He loves his covenant. And because he loves his covenant and will be totally faithful to it, he will be faithful to you because you're the person he's in covenant with. And so the psalmist presents us a God that mocks all human strength, but brings his own strength to bear in keeping his covenant, and he loves that. He takes pleasure in the man who is in his covenant, who fears him, and hopes in his hesed. Question two. 
What does the psalmist see God doing? Well, going back to near the beginning in verse 2, we see God, quote, building up Jerusalem. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Our psalm is a fairly late psalm. It comes after the regathering, after the, the Israelites have been allowed to return to the promised land. The current situation is that Jerusalem lies in ruins. The temple is destroyed. Everything about religious worship of the true God is shattered. But God is bringing his very dilapidated, beaten down, and justly punished people back to the promised land. And this is as close to a miracle as you can get for providence. Other nations have been totally eradicated. You've had the end of the world. The Babylonians have literally swept away the ancient world. People who had been known for for thousands of years are gone. They're all dead. And everyone would have thought that the people of God would go the same way. But they haven't. They have been preserved. And the psalmist points to God bringing men out of exile. They have been in exile in pagan lands. They have been in utter darkness. But the psalmist says, look what God is doing. He is building up Jerusalem by bringing people back. The city is being restored. The outcasts he is bringing back, the psalmist says, he is healing their hearts. In verse 3, You have a parallelism, and and it's all about the same thing. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. The the, the word wounds is supplied here to make the sentence make sense in English, because what do you bind up? You bind up wounds. So if I have a cut on my arm, you're going to wrap it, you know. But that's not really what the original says. The original says he binds up their sorrows. It is a, a very general word for heartbreak, and he's used it in the first line. The people of God who are being redeemed, they have been reduced to heartache. They have had a thousand outer things done to them in God's wrath, But that doesn't compare to the thousand inner pains they have suffered knowing God's displeasure. They have been punished justly by God. They have been cut off from worship of God. Their hearts have been shattered. Heartache is something that unless you've had it, you don't really understand it. And they've had it. Their hearts have been shattered. They have been brought low And they are wounded inside. And God is binding up all those sorrows. Like a shepherd, he is calling his sheep from many fields and drawing them to the sheep pen. Verse 4 reads, He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. At the time of the translation of the Geneva Bible, The scholars there 
found that statement a little perplexing. The psalmist has been talking about God being good to Israel, and now God is counting the stars. Why is that? Well, the only answer they could come up with is this. Um, Though it seemed to man incredible that God should assemble his church, being so dispersed, yet nothing can be too hard for him that can number and name all the stars. So the, the, the Puritans in Geneva, they said, you know, the reason why the psalmist is talking about numbering the stars is the, the, the singer and the hearer may be thinking, how can this possibly happen? Well, God literally knows all the heavenly bodies and calls them by name. Uh, that's true, and that's profound, but that's not exactly what's happening here. The reference is actually to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, chapter... 15, this is what God promises Abraham in verse 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. The emphasis here is on people without number. There will be a great number of people. But the way it is spoken, God literally calls the descendants of Abraham star-like. They are lights in the darkness. They are like the stars in that you can't count them. They are like the stars in that they stand out in the darkness. And that's what the psalmist is referring to. The people of God have been justly punished. They have rebelled against God, but they are called to be star-like. They're called to be like lights in the darkness. And God is now restoring them, and he is drawing them shepherd-like. And like a shepherd, he knows the name of every sheep, and they don't all look alike to him. He knows their names, he knows their number, and he is counting them as they come in. As just an aside... That kind of language is used in the New Testament for us. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is making an allusion to this very image. Chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. The New International Version translates it as, uh, among whom you shine as stars in the universe. At least the original did. I don't know what the current one does. But it's not wrong. The word world here is cosmos, and you can translate it world, but you can also translate it universe. And Paul is pointing to the Christians in Philippi and saying, you're star-like. You are lights in darkness. You hold fast the word of life. And the original, the, the, the original picture is you holding it, but kind of holding it like this. It's for you, but you're also holding it out for everyone else. Like a star, you are shining light into the darkness. You are offering light to the darkness. 
Uh, it's an amazing passage on evangelism. This is what you're supposed to do. Do everything without murmuring and complaining. That's what the world does, and it's really good at it. Uh, put that away and hold the, wor- the word out. Share the word of God with the darkness because you're stars in the universe. Uh, but it is a reference to Genesis. God tells Abraham, your descendants will be as the stars in the heavens. And the apostle says to Christians, that's you. But that is an aside. Going back to what the psalmist sees God doing, he sees him sending the blessings of summer. That is in verse 8 and 9. Who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beasts its food and to the young ravens that cry. God is providing all these things through creation and providence. He is doing it for his people in Jerusalem. Summer is blessing them. The psalmist also sees God providing the blessings of winter. And this is a little bit more of a strange passage. This is in verse 15 through 18. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. So the psalmist is emphasizing God is commanding what's going to happen. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. What is a morsel? A morsel is a bit of food, and that's actually what the original says. He casts out his his hail-like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? So the psalmist talks about God bringing the blessings of summer, and that's fairly straightforward. All the harvest and the blessing of summer, God's doing that. Now God is sending winter, and it's cold, and ice is falling from the sky the size of morsels, and you can't stand before his cold. And so as you're singing this psalm, you may be wondering to yourself, why am I celebrating this? Because this is all very painful. I can't stand before his cold. But the psalm goes on, he sends out his word and melts them, He causes his wind to blow, and the waters flow. How do you have the blessings of summer? How do you have the great crop that feeds Jerusalem? Well, you have it because of water. And you're not going to have water unless the winter comes with its ice. That's the way it works in the promised land. If you don't have the winter, you can't have the summer. And so the psalmist is emphasizing God's blessing in both. Now, make no mistake, the psalmist is talking about God really running the weather. Uh, This is not just a symbol. But it can't be missed that the psalmist has basically said, God is at work giving you blessings that you acknowledge and also giving you blessings that you don't at first acknowledge and you, in fact, think are extremely painful. God brings food out of those chunks of hail. God gives life because of the torment of winter, and he is doing all of this to build up Jerusalem. 
God is providentially good to his people in winter and summer. The psalmist ends his focus on what God is doing in verse 19 and 20. There we read, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. What God is doing at the end of the psalm is he is making the people of God know the word of God. He has given the word of God into the world, and he has given it to a very specific group of people, that is, Israel, his chosen people. The folks in Geneva, not missing any, um, not missing any opportunity to focus on God's sovereignty, want you to think about what was just said, uh, God gives his word to a certain group of people and not to others. God emphasizes that I have spoken my word to my chosen, not to the Babylonians, not to the, the Chinese, not to the Romans. I've given my word to my people. The note here says, the cause of this difference is God's free mercy which hath elected in his Son, Christ Jesus, to salvation his own, and his just judgment whereby he hath appointed the reprobate to eternal damnation. That is, without doubt, an emphasis of what the psalmist has just said. The psalmist sees God favoring his elect and blessing them, making them know his word. Who exactly is Jacob and Israel? That's an interesting question for today. If you jump to the Gospels, you read language that talks directly to what God is doing here. Uh, Listen to Mark chapter 4, verse 10 through 12. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable, and he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Isn't that interesting language? Why do you speak to them in parables? Well, uh, they're not the type to hear. And so I tell them the truth, but they don't get it. I tell you, my disciples, all of the oracles of God. To you, I make it known. To them, it is hidden. Now, who is it that it's hidden from in Mark? Well, it's people who are racially Jewish who outwardly could say, now I'm a descendant of Abraham, but Jesus talks about them like the psalm talks about pagans. They're outside and the word of God isn't given to them. I give it to you, my disciples. Listen to the words of John chapter 12, 
verses 37 to 41. One second. And some of them said, hmm, it's chapter 11. Uh, Oh, here we go. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart, lest they should turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, talking about Christ, when he saw his glory, And spoke of him. Our psalmist promises us that one of the things God does for Israel, for Jacob, is he makes them know God's word. But everyone else is blinded. It's like a veil has been put over their heart. They don't see it, they don't understand it. Well, the New Testament uses this for people who could outwardly claim to be Israel but have rejected Jesus the King. In Scripture, one of the ways you can know that you are Israel, that you are Jacob, is who does God today reveal His Word to? Is the Word of God embraced and loved in the synagogue? The answer is not really. But the Word of God is embraced and loved in the Christian church where the Holy Spirit moves among us. The Word of God comes to us, and we love it, and we embrace it, because God reveals His Word to Israel, and that is us. Question three, who are the people of God in this psalm? Well, we've covered a lot of this, but just to reiterate, the people of God are outcasts. They have been outcast by God under his wrath, and in the dark world they've been outcast, not accepted. They are the refuse of the earth. No one loves them, no one cares for them, no one will cut them a break, except one person. God is regathering them, and he loves them. They are the brokenhearted. They are shattered inside their hope, their desire, their longings. Everything of this earth has proven to be an empty vanity to them, and their heart is broken. But God is binding up their hearts. They have been cast into darkness in the diaspora, but God calls them stars in this psalm again, so that they shine like lights, and... Most significantly, in verse 12, they are the humble as opposed to the proud. The psalmist tells us that God loves the humble, but he casts the proud down to the ground. That might explain verse 19 and 20. Those outside of the covenant of God are left to their own moral estate and devices, 
And are they begging to come into the light? And are they longing to know God? Not at all. They are prideful against God. They hate God in heart. But it is the brokenhearted and the outcast that God, in His grace, has made humble. Has God broken you at some point? Has He shattered you so that you cannot feel like you can move inwardly or outwardly? That is God showing His love for the outcast of Israel, making them humble, bringing them to where they see themselves as who they really are before him, and he will embrace the humble, and so he does. And that is who God will make his people of. Question four, how does God's nature relate to what God is doing here? Well, we've already covered that, but because I want to absolutely drum it into your mind so you say it in your sleep, verse 11 talks about his hesed. God could have justly let Israel be scattered and disappear. God would do no wrong if mankind's offspring had no saved people in it. But God's nature is to keep covenant. When the people of God had turned from him and worshipped idols and had broken all the commandments fragrantly, when they had been more pagan than the pagans, God promised, I will bring you back in 70 years. And the reason why God did it is not because you were a great treasure that was lost. It's he had made a promise. Five, how does this moment in biblical history uh, work as a type and a shadow for us now? The psalmist saw a shattered Jerusalem, a broken city. Biblically, in the New Testament, the city of Jerusalem is the church of the living God. The the city always typified the chosen people where the Spirit would dwell in them. And it may not have been so in every age, but in the age which we live in, Jerusalem is shattered. The visible church of God is filled with heresies beyond number. Its organizations are corrupt. Its leaders are corrupt. Jerusalem has been utterly shattered. And the fact that we are a congregation kind of comes out of that. We are all, many of us, refugees from a shattered, corrupt, and sinful Jerusalem. But the Lord God will not leave his city shattered. The Lord God, we are promised, will build up Jerusalem and he will bring back the outcasts out of the world. Even in this very moment where the church is so corrupt and is more corrupt than before the Reformation, God will gather the stars as sheep. He will bring them into his fold And he is doing that right now. And how is he doing it? He is doing it through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is at work in the world this very moment. He calls them by name and he numbers them. Well, listen to Christ as he speaks about himself. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The sheep does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Now the language about thieves, robbers, and and 'er ne'er-do-wells in this passage is there because Jesus came when Jerusalem was shattered, like today. God's kingdom lay in ruins as much then as now. And there was corruption in the church beyond measure. But Jesus puts himself in contradistinction to that and says, even though you've got these people trying to climb in, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me, I count them, I number them, I bring them safely into the sheep pen. I am the sheep pen, I'm the door to come into it, and I'm the good shepherd. So as you, as you sing this psalm and you hear about God gathering his people, uh, Jesus is doing that right now, and that's why you are here. Jesus is at work in the world this very moment. Sixth, what is the appropriate response to this action of God? Well, going back to our psalm, um, the psalmist seems to have a very blatant answer to that. Verse 1, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Going to verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, sing praises to our God. Going to verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, praise your God, O Zion. Going to the last part of verse 20, praise the Lord. How do you respond to the love and care of God, to the assembling of his people, to bringing them back into fellowship with himself and building them up? Well, you're thankful and it breaks out in song. That is the appropriate response. Now, human flesh may not see it, but the simplicity of praise, verse 1 says, is utterly beautiful. Sing praise to God. It is good, and the reason why it's good is because it's beautiful, because of what God has done. The psalmist wants you to be people of of praise, 
the Geneva Bible's note here, I really love it. He showeth wherein we ought to exercise ourselves continually and to take our pastime, to wit, in praising God. The psalmist calls us to have a perpetual hobby in praising God. That's the right response. And our last question of the text is, what is the command of this psalm? If you're looking for the the how do I apply it hit, well, you just heard it. The glory of God has been presented. The nature of God has been shown. Man's brokenness and sinfulness but, and need of redemption has been shown. God's power has been demonstrated. But what is the command to you? It is to have a grateful heart. It is to praise God continually. It is to realize the gratitude you should have for what he has done. The you should go home and do this part of the psalm is always praise God. We sing the psalms and praise him on the Lord's day. This is the pinnacle of this worship. But the psalm calls Zion, and that's you, God calls Zion to be perpetually at praise, to be filled with thanksgiving. And that is only the reasonable response. How could we not? For who God is. Is there any catechism work that needs to be done at this time? Number 60. Number 60. Can you borrow your book? Um, How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is all, though my conscience accuses me. But I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them. And am still prone always to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of mine, a mere grace, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. If only I believe such, if only I accept such benefit with believing heart. Um, you you you, you the the last little part, and you're doing extremely well. And this is a this is a big question, but you jumped over uh, the righteousness and holiness. Of Christ, and that's kind of the key to the passage. So um, I'm glad you're doing great, but why don't we take up here next week? Is there any other catechism work that needs to be done? Going once and going twice. If not, then please stand and let us confess before one another, before the world and God, what our faith is. Christian, why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. And because God will give His grace and Holy Spirit only to those who earnestly and
What belongs to such prayer which is acceptable to God and which he will hear? What has God commanded us to ask of him? All things necessary for soul and body, which Christ our Lord provides in his prayer, which he himself taught us. What is the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, Please be seated and let us seek God in prayer. Lord God, we are grateful that you love Zion above all the dwellings of Jacob, that you will build your church, you will send forth your spirit, and you will have a witness. Father, I pray that you would be merciful to us in that you would make us the humble, the humble filled with thanksgiving and praise, a people worthy of the great shepherd who is bringing us into the sheepfold. Father, we do pray for the dwellings of Jacob, though. You love Zion above them, but that specifically means that you love them, and we pray for every household represented here. We pray that the dwellings of Jacob would know your providential care and you would protect those who dwell there. Father, we pray for those who are husband and wife, that you would uh, protect their marriage and give them gifts and graces to be husband and wife to your glory. We pray for the children in such households, that you would protect them by your angels and, and guard them by your spirit, and that you would be making them scholars of your word. We pray that these disciples you have given us would be sanctified by your word and your spirit and that you would draw them to faith in appropriate time. Father, soften their hearts and sharpen their minds that this generation which shall surpass us will surpass us in holiness, righteousness, and knowledge as well. Lord, we pray for our ministries and our missionaries. We thank you that our women's group was able to interact with one of those, and it was a blessed interaction. Lord, those we support, we pray that you would protect them and give them gifts and graces, just as we pray for ourselves. We ask, Lord, that you would, in each way they are designed to share the gospel, you would give them open doors to do that, and you would give blinded eyes the ability to see that they might minister to them. 
Father, we pray for those who are on our hearts. Whatever the need may be, it may be physical, it may be a matter of of sickness, it might be spiritual, they may be wandering in the darkness. Uh, Father, you know the need. We lift these names before you now from our hearts. We pray that you administer to them of your mightiness and of your power and of your understanding. Father, we trust you to hear our prayers and to glorify yourself in these matters. Father, we thank you for our shepherd who has taught us to pray. He taught us to pray saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, we will take our tithes and offerings. Our most merciful and gracious God, of whose bounty we have all received, we implore you to accept this offering of your people. Remember in your love those who have brought it and those for whom it is given. Please follow it with your blessing that it may promote peace and goodwill among men and advance the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear the words of the Holy Gospel taken from St. Matthew. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, in Christ's name, I take these elements, the bread and the wine, to be set apart by prayer and thanksgiving, to the holy use for which he has appointed them. Let us pray together. O God, you have by the blood of your dear Son set apart for us a new and living way into the holiest of all. Cleanse our minds, we implore you, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that drawing near unto you with a pure heart and undefiled we may receive these, your gifts, without sin, 
and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The bread which we break is by faith a participation in the body of Christ. Partake together. In just like manner, the cup which we bless is a participation in the blood of Christ.
and let us partake together. O Lord, save your people and bless your inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Remember, O Lord, your congregation, which you have purchased of old. Pour out your spirit as floods upon the dry ground and refresh your waiting heritage. Let your saints, your priests, be clothed with righteousness and shout for joy. Show your mercy also unto them that are afar off, and gather all the lost sheep into your fold, for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Please stand, and let us worship the Lord, singing Psalm 11. My trust is in the Lord. How can you say to me, now like a bird from peril haste, and to your mountain flee, the wicked men mumble with arrow fixed for flight, and stealthily in darkness go, a true in heart to smite. Foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous try? The Lord is in his holy place, the Lord's throne is on high. His eyes will surely see, his eyelids triumph sons. The Lord tries just and wicked men, his soul hates cruel ones. Upon all wicked men, he'll reign in tangling snares, brimstone and fire and burning wind before their cup prepares. For righteous is the Lord, and he loves righteousness, and everyone who upright is will see his gracious face. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face, the rain fall soft upon your fields, and until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. May the sacred three pour out upon you mildly and generously more and more forever. Our psalm of doxology is Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. In pastures green, he leads 
Just a word of procedure, it is our tradition after we have fed on the Word of God to feed on lunch, and everyone is invited to that. It is lunchtime, and you might as well stay, and it's free. Um, Other than that, go in peace and serve the Lord. Although, if, if you want. Fine motor skills if you can slide those in. Computer completely went off. Fritz? What? You didn't get it back? Get what back? Zoom. Oh, I got it back, but now your computer has turned off. Yeah. Yeah, let's see what happens. Okay.
Wonderful job. Thank you. I always, I always look forward to Sundays. I, 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 I too. enjoy the, your sermons. Sometimes I don't tell you, but maybe you should know. So. <laughs> Thank you, brother. So, it is a joy here, actually. I have I pastored some churches, whereas pastor, you know, this is my job, but I wasn't really happy about going. Here, there is a spirit-filled love of the brethren, and I get to watch that. You know, I watch people interact here, and it's very, very genuine. It's very Christian. Uh, the bonds that that you have made with people are very real, and it's fun to be among the saints. You know, everybody's bummed when the days that we can't make it or something happens. Everyone's pretty bummed. So. Yeah. Well, speaking of that sort of thing, I'm going to miss Stephen. Yeah. You're going to miss him more, but. Yeah, we're all Both of your oldest boys have become mature young men. Yeah. And that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, like I always tell people, it's like, my how good of a job I did won't be told for years to come, right? So if they and, and not not in wealth, not in gain, not in job, not in stature, but if they're believers and they, they follow the, the, the word, you know, um, if if they do that, then then I know that you know I listen to God to some degree. <laughs> you, you have shepherded your flock. So. Yeah, Got the sermon. Uh, okay. It's been that kind of day. Oh, good. I was like, I hope it turned it off. <laughs> That's why it's still recording me now. It is. Uh, it is actually, but, but it won't go anywhere. It'll be. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm in 